Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Fellowship Podcast. We hope this message will inspire, challenge, and encourage you to grow closer to Christ. If you're in the Anchorage area, we invite you to be our guest during our morning Sunday worship service at 11 a.m. For directions, or if you would like more information about us, please visit akmaranatha.com. And uh, I trust that uh, Susie and Dean have done a great job and you guys are blessed by it. So thanks for doing that. Um, we want to take a look at some conversations with Jesus in the upper room. And we've been dealing with um, individuals that have had conversations with Jesus in different settings. I don't know if you can find a place where you'll just have a private conversation. There are very few private conversations. Usually there's some disciples around that are witnessing what's going on. Sometimes there's a crowd around, like uh, when the woman <laughs> secretly tries to slip up and touch the hem of Jesus' garment, and he turns around right there in the middle of the crowd and says, who touched me? And uh, one of his disciples says, Lord, how could we know who touched you? It's such a thick crowd. And uh, and then Jesus, of course, um, tells her that her faith has made her whole, and she's uh, she's uh, been healed as a result of it. In uh, in John 14, it would be hard to follow the ideas in this passage in a logical way. Uh, I think it's better if we group them. Uh, these are these are the people Jesus is talking with. He talks with Thomas and Philip and Judas, not Iscariot. They make that clear, and John makes that clear in the text. But he's talking with these people. They're not private conversations, but he addresses their personal questions. And uh, you'll find in, in verses 1 through 7 that Jesus is addressing something that deals with uh, Thomas. In verses 8 through 14 with question related to Philip. And verse uh, 15 through 31, something that Judas, not the Iscariot, has, has asked him. And these are among his last words. He spoke them in the upper room at the Last Supper. And uh, they're said to reinforce faith in a time that... Uh, they would no longer be able to see Jesus. I'd like you to just think about this for a moment, that the disciples who are with Jesus, they've been walking with Jesus, and uh, they've seen him, he's, he's relied upon, or they've relied upon him uh, for their faith, and they've relied upon him for the teaching that they would receive, and, and they're following his direction, and they're following his mission, and all of that is part of their apprenticeship as disciples. Now, how many would have liked to have been able to walk with Jesus in that way? Wouldn't that have been an excellent uh, thing to uh, to do? But do you know, uh, on the other side of that, those who were given much had to pay a great price. Did you know that all of the disciples, I'm going to take Judas out of the equation because he's a different case, all the other disciples, Judas the uh, Iscariot, not the other Judas, all the other disciples, as far as we know, except one, laid down their life in martyrdom. Do you know that? Who was the one? disciple. John, who's the writer of this letter or this uh, gospel. And so uh, there was there was this moment that came in the ministry of Christ in which he was telling his disciples that it was time for him to depart. Remember, he's saying all through the book of John, it's not my time has not yet come. I'm not it's not my hour to be lifted up yet. And so uh, he's constantly pushing off that moment because it's at a divinely appointed moment that that's going to take place. But now the time has come. And for the first time, the disciples would have to live with Christ in the same way that we do. 
None of you thought about this, but they're going to have to live with Christ in the same way that we do. That is, without his physical presence with them. We don't have the physical presence of Jesus with us. Okay, uh, I even feel a little bit weird about saying that because I don't want you to misunderstand. Jesus said, I'm with you always, even at the end of the age. But in terms of his physical presence, we can't touch him. We can't see him. We just know by promise that he's with us. Are you, are you with me on that? Are we all in agreement that we don't have the physical presence of Jesus with us? And so in a, a similar way, these disciples are having to now rely upon uh, the next level of faith. That what Jesus said is true even when he's not with them. So the first time they have to walk by faith and not by sight. A sudden unexpected change was coming. And um, probably you realize that can really be upsetting, can't it? When something that we've expected, something we were counting on is taken away. And suddenly we're faced with a new kind of situation in life. And so that was unsettling to their faith, and it would be unsettling to our faith, this sudden and unexpected change. And while it can be emotionally unsettling, it should never unsettle our faith. And that's what this section's about. Jesus says two times um, in John 14, don't let your hearts be troubled. Let's read through this and get the gist of of what's being said here, and then we'll talk about some some areas that Christ was dealing with. Don't let your hearts be troubled, verse 1. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, I would, have, I would not have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. You know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Jesus answered, I'm the way. The truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. We'll be content with that. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been with you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I don't speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works that I've been doing, and they will do even greater works, uh, greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I'll do it. If you love me, keep my commandments and I'll ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you before long. The world will not see me anymore, but you will see me because I live. You will live. You also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I, too, will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, 
And then the Greek, it says, not the Iscariot, not the Iscariot, said, but Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. My father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the father who sent me. All this I've spoken while still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all the things, all things, and will remind you of everything that I've said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I've told you now before it happens, so that when it happens, you will believe. I will not say much more to you, for the prince of this world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what my Father has commanded me. Come now, let us leave. So they're getting ready to leave the upper room. And if uh, they weren't already upset by the fact that Jesus is leaving, uh, it would probably add extra stress to them and to us to know uh, the prince of this world is coming. (laughs) You know, who's that talking about? Satan. Okay, so Satan. But in the midst of his departure, Jesus' departure, and I think he has in mind immediately the cross, but, you know, within uh, 40 days' time, he'll be ascended to heaven and he'll no longer be with them physically. But then 10 days following, what's going to happen uh, after that, after Jesus ascends, they they go to Jerusalem and they wait, and then something happens. The Holy Spirit comes and falls upon them, and he said, I will not leave you as orphans. So I, I just want you to see here, I want all of us to see here, this is Jesus' preparation for these disciples for dealing with a troubled world in which they can't see Jesus with their physical eyes. So welcome to the life of faith. That's what this is about. Okay, how do we deal with that kind of thing? I'd like you to see in verse 1, uh, Jesus starts out with, don't let your hearts be troubled. Don't let your hearts be troubled. In chapter, uh, well, this same chapter, verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I don't give you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. So again, he says the same things. It tells us that we're, we're looking at a passage in which he's dealing with the possibility that followers sometimes can let their hearts be troubled. And he doesn't want that to be the case because he wants us to so rest upon his promises that we're not shaken by the events that are taking place around us. I hope during all of the confusion of the last three years, um, three Ps, uh, pandemic, politics, and Putin, that your lives haven't been shaken. I hope that's the case, that we're, we're realizing the world, as long as there are fallen people, is going to be in turmoil. But we have a kingdom, Hebrew says, you have a kingdom which cannot be shaken. And then I think it follows immediately with the voice, lift up the hands that hang down, strengthen those, those uh, feeble knees, let's get after it, let's be strong in God, because we're not going down with this ship. So I I would encourage us. That's what he's talking about here. Here, when it says, don't let your hearts be troubled, troubled means it comes from a a word. I'm going to write it out here. Maybe you're interested in this. Maybe you're not. Okay. Terrasso. I think that's uh, 
maybe how you would say it. And uh, this word is used uh, 18 times in the New Testament. 11 of them are in John. And it's literally used, when you use it in a literal way, it's used for troubling waters. So when the waters are troubled, like, you know, you see calm waters and then you throw a stone in there and it splashes and there's a ripple effect. And the waters have been troubled. You remember uh, when it talks about earlier in the book of John going to the pool and the waters being stirred. Okay, it's the same word that's being used there. And what it means is uh, when it's used figuratively, like when it's, it's used of some kind of inner agitation with us, it means that there's some kind of uneasiness mixed with fear. Have you ever felt that? Does that ring a bell, that kind of emotion, uneasiness mixed with fear? That's what he's dealing with here. So when he says, uh, don't let your hearts be troubled, don't be uneasy about what's about to happen. I'm telling you in advance so that you can believe. And I've, I've often wondered because uh, in the tradition that I grew up around, uh, we were told never to say negative things. Okay? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Don't ever say negative things. Okay? But here's the f- fascinating thing. Jesus said negative things all the time. He said, in the world you'll have trouble. Jesus, don't say that. You're creating the trouble by your words. No, the trouble was already there. He was recognizing the reality of what was. In the world, you'll have tribulation. In the world, you'll have trouble. So he calls it for what it is. He says, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. He talks about the negative side of life because he's a realist. But he says, be of good cheer. I've overcome all of that. So you can be real and still have a victory mindset. You can call the negative thing for what it is and still be victorious because Jesus has won the battle. I don't mean we should be negative Nellies all the time. Uh, Definitely we shouldn't. But I think we should also tell the truth and be real about it. This is exactly what's happening. Jesus is saying, I'm going away. The prince uh, of this world is coming, and he's about to try to have his way, but uh, I'm going to be victorious even in that. Aren't you glad for that? So he says... uh, don't be troubled by this. And you can see why this matters to us because we're in the same condition. We live, we live in the same condition, troubling circumstances. We have an invisible Lord. We have a present helper that's been promised in this chapter, the Holy Spirit. We have uh, a Lord of promise and presence among us. He makes promises and he sends his presence to be with us. And uh, he's invisible to our eyes and yet present to our memory and alive and history and our experiences. And so there's encouragement in this for us. So what the Lord is doing here is reassuring the disciples that what's about to happen is happening in the plan of God, and they're not to give up believing. Okay. I don't think everything that happens personally, I don't think everything that happens is in God's perfect plan. I think there are things that happen outside of God's plan that maybe he allows but that he nonetheless uses, because we know all things work together for the good. I don't think God causes people to sin, but I think when people sin, he can still use those sinful conditions for his glory. I believe that wholeheartedly, that he can turn things around. Uh, I think Genesis fifty twenty is the Romans 8.28. What's Romans 8.28? All, all things work together for the good. Right? And Genesis 50:20 is the Old Testament example of that. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. 
So we're seeing uh, that God can take things and turn them around. And so what, uh, what Christ wanted his disciples to know here is that everything that happens, everything that's about to happen in the next 24 hours, because they're going to go out uh, and they're going to cross the Kidron Valley and they're going to go to the Mount of Olives and pray for a little bit in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus is going to kneel before his rock, rock altar and he's going to pray, let this cup pass. And he's going to come to terms with the fact that this is God's will. Judas is going to lead a group of temple guards into the garden. And he's going to kiss Jesus on the cheek, identifying him as the one. And the guards are going to take him away to three mock trials where he's going to be condemned to death and he's going to be crucified. These guys don't know all that. They're celebrating Passover. It's a time of celebration, remembering God's goodness. But what Jesus wants them to know is all of this is happening and God is not unaware and that there's still reason to have faith in him despite these circumstances, right? And whatever is happening in our lives presently, good, bad, or ugly, we can still have faith in God. And so he gives them some encouragement in four areas. First, that uh, he will, when he goes away, he will return to them. And I, I'm saying them, but it's to us too. He will return to us. He's not going to be gone forever. We will be reunited. I like that song, oh, I want to see him, look upon his face, there to sing forever of a saving grace. Right? Remember that song? Uh, we're looking forward to that kind of a Savior, one who returns for us. He's encouraging them, uh, them in some way that though they will not see him, he's still going to be present with them. He encourages them that they're, continue, they're to continue to live the way that he taught them to live and that he truly is Messiah, though they may wonder uh, when they see what happens to him. Uh, and this goes back to a lot of the popular expectation of what Messiah would look like, that he's going to be a conqueror. And, uh, none of the bad things that the evil Gentile governments of the world would try to do could really happen to this kind of Messiah. That's, that's kind of how they felt about it. And so all that they believed, not scripturally, but popularly, would be challenged. And uh, would you be willing to admit that some things we believe not because they're in scripture, but because it's popular? Nobody wants to admit that, but it's true. We do. We believe some things, not because they're scriptural, but because it's kind of the, the accepted beliefs. It's the uh, conventional wisdom of our day. And so they have to deal with that. They're going to have to deal with those things being challenged. And so what Jesus does first is he gives three promises. Okay, let's just... Uh, promises. Okay, three promises. First of all, he promises that he is the way to the Father. This is a lot bigger than it first appears. It's not just like a, a road to God, although the word that he uses for way is like a thoroughfare. It's the way from one place to another. And in Jesus' case, he's saying it's the exclusive way. Jesus is the way to where, first of all, where the Father is and where he himself is. Look at verse 2 with me. It says here in verse 2, In my Father's house are many rooms. In my Father's house are many rooms. Okay. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? 
sounds a little bit different maybe than uh, the King James, but uh, the point here when it said uh, when it says rooms and if you're troubled by the fact that it doesn't say mansions there, I'd just like to let you know that in 1611, mansion meant a place that you lived. It didn't mean what it means to us today. So we can't plug that term back in. We have to understand what does the Greek word mean. And the Greek word means a place of dwelling. In my father's house are many dwelling places. And so he's telling us he's gone to prepare a place for us. And so uh, we can still sing it and have fun, but... You know, I've got a mansion just over the hilltop. It's not necessarily what this verse is talking about. Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And uh, if you follow uh, Jewish marital practices, okay, what they would do is they would, the bridegroom would go to his father's house and prepare an addition onto the house, a room. Then he would go get his bride and bring her back, and they would live there with the family. But what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's showing a way to the Father. My fa- Notice that it's in my Father's house. He's preparing a place in his Father's house so that we can be with God. We can be with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay? That's what he's doing as he's going to prepare a place for us. And he's the way for that. Thomas asks the question in verse 6, uh, how are we going to know the way? And Jesus says, I'm the way. And he's not only the way to where the Father is, he's also the way to who the Father is. He's God, and and he is Father. And this is much bigger than maybe uh, we realize that he's God and he's Father. We, we come to know who he is through Jesus. Some people think of God in different weird ways. Have you, have you noticed that? There's a book that's out uh, now that surveyed uh, teenagers across the nation, and what they found out is called Soul Searching. And they found out that no matter what teenagers had as their religion, Islam, uh, even Buddhism, even though Buddhism isn't necessarily a God-believing religion, uh, Judaism, Christianity, that they all pretty much believe the same thing. And they call it, uh, they call it therapeutic, moralistic therapeutic deism. And what it means is that God basically doesn't care what I do with my life. He just basically comes in to do what makes me happy. And they found out that no matter what was taught to these kids, they've all somehow come away with these ideas about God, that he's not interested so much in our holiness, he's interested only in our happiness. And that's sad, because God sometimes will forego our happiness to make us holy, because he wants us to be good. He works on our character. He cares more about our character than he cares about our comfort. Anyway, um, there's these strange ideas out there about what God is like. And uh, C.S. Lewis said people don't want so much a father in heaven as they want a grandfather, benevolent grandfather, who says at the end of the day, fun was had by all, as long as everybody had a good time. And, uh, you know, that's, that's not what God's like. God is a loving father who chastens and rebukes and deals with us so that we can be eternally happy, not just temporarily happy. He's making us creatures fit for heaven. If we go like we are, it's going to mess it up, right? Would you agree? If we don't get this character perfected, it messes heaven up. We don't want to bring all of the world's problems into heaven. We want God to perfect this and make us holy. And whatever area we haven't made up in this life as God's perfecting us, He'll he'll make it up so that we are holy. It's not that that gets us to heaven. 
But once he saves us, he's perfecting us. Are you with me? Okay, I hope you are. You don't, you don't want to say yes too loud. You might get God on your case about something. But it's true. He's the way to the Father, and God is the Father. No one comes to the Father except through me in verse 6. So it's through Jesus that God becomes our Father. If someone says this, we're all God's children, and they're referring to just everybody, I would encourage you to ask them what they mean. Do you mean that he's our creator, that everybody is God's child by virtue of creation? If that's the case, yeah, that's true. But there's a special sense in which we become God's children through Jesus. Okay? And uh, if uh, you'd like some verses on that, I would just encourage you uh, to read Ephesians 2, especially verse 3. We were by nature children of wrath. We were by nature children of wrath, Ephesians 2, verse 3. This is one of those now or then and now kind of scriptures. Uh, Then it says in verse 19, now you have become members of God's household. It's the before and after photo. We weren't, we weren't, God wasn't our father before, not in the way that he is after we've come to Christ, not, not in the way that he is after we've been redeemed. He becomes our father in a special way, a spiritual way. We've been brought up to the table. It's like when David showed kindness to Mephibosheth and he brought him up to the table and he made him like one of his own sons. There was a before and after. There was a time when we were by nature children of wrath. We were under God's wrath. And now we've been made his sons and daughters. Okay, so something has changed there. Jesus is the entrance into the family of God. Okay, not only that, but Jesus is the way to the Father, is the way to know the Father. If you really know me, he says, verse 7, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. So Jesus kind of like drawing a line in their timeline and saying, you've seen enough of who I am to realize that what I'm really doing, everything I do points to the father and it points to the nature of what the father is like. It shows what he's like. Hebrews 1, you know, in times past, God spoke in many ways through uh, the apostles and prophets, but in these last days, he's shown us who he is by his son. He's expressed himself more clearly, John 1, through Jesus coming. We've never known God like we've known him since we looked at Jesus. He shows us what the Father is like. And when I say God, I'm talking about God the Father. When we talk about Jesus, we're talking about God the Son. So I don't want us to get confused. Uh, we're Trinitarian, and, and maybe we'll talk about that if we have some time here more in a moment. So Jesus is the way to know the Father, okay? If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well, okay? So uh, in verse 9, he says, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. What does Jesus mean by if anyone has seen me, he's seen the Father? He and the Father, option one is he and the Father are the same person. Uh, That can't be. I would upset scripture logic and the traditional understanding of God's nature. For one thing, the scripture says the word was with God and the word was God. Okay, so it's kind of a paradox for us, but to understand that Jesus is both God and with God. We've got to work through that. We have to hold both those statements as true, even if we can't, we can't work it out in our own thinking. Okay. 
what we would expect is that with God, there's no exact analogy to what the Trinity is like. Because there's nothing else in creation like the uncreated. Okay, so we ought to expect when we come to God and His nature, there's going to be a little bit of a mystery. So when we talk about this, for one thing, Scripture says, the Word was with God and the Word was God. And so with calls for distinction, since anyone who is with someone is not the person they're with. Are you with me? If you're with somebody, you're not the person you're with. But, and so what we say is that we believe in one God, eternally existent in three persons, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Okay, so... Uh, was God suggesting that which uh, was God? I'm sorry, I don't know what I wrote here. All right. Well, it's not easy, but it's uh, the only thing which makes sense of the Scriptures to understand that he's not the same person, yet he's God. Okay. Uh, logically, it doesn't make sense for Jesus to talk of the Father as a distinct person. Like, I only do the Father's will if the Father weren't. We're only another aspect of his own personhood. Um, John five nineteen, for example, Jesus gave them this answer very truly. I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees the Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. The other option that we come to is that he and the Father are distinct persons, but unified in substance and purpose. And when there is mystery, then we have to stay true to what we do know. The Son is not the Father, but the Son is God. And the classical uh, way to describe this is the Father is God, the Father is not the Son. The Father is God, the Son is God, the, the Son is not the Father. The Spirit is God, the Spirit is not the Father or the Son. And you can kind of see this. There's a diagram that shows all of this. It's, uh, it's true that God is uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but distinct. And so when Jesus is saying this, he's not saying that I'm just like an emanation of the Father. He's a distinct person. And maybe we could take more time and other time to deal with that. We have a lot more to cover. But he is saying that he's unified. He's unified. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, verse 10 and verse 20. So he's recognizing that there, there uh, is a unity within the Godhead, in which they work together, unity of substance and unity of purpose. And then in expression, I don't speak on my own authority. The Father uh, is doing his work, and, um, and I do the work that I see him doing. So when we see Jesus in this subordinate uh, role to the Father, I think it's been understood that in terms of his godness, his divinity, that he's co-equal with the Father. In terms of his humanity, he's subordinate to the Father. There is a thing out there, I, hate, I don't even know if I should mention this, but there is a, a trend within evangelicalism to see God uh, the Son as eternally subordinate to the Father. In other words, in his divine nature, pre-incarnate, he was subordinate to the Father. Uh, I don't know that that makes the best sense of Scripture. But I do know in his humanity, he does what the Father tells him to do. He's obedient as the son to a father. And uh, he shows us in that what it means to be a child of God. John wants us to know that Jesus ascended and therefore is no longer here physically. And yet he still 
the way to the Father for every person. So Jesus tells his disciples, I'm getting ready to go away. But I want you to know that even when I go, I'm still the way to the Father. Okay, It's not just while he's there. Jesus in heaven is the way to the Father. Are you with me on that? This is uh, some important theological groundwork we're doing to understand that we don't get there just because we want to have a relationship with God. We have to go through the work and the person of Jesus, who is the Son, who laid down his life for us. He died for us. It's not through our rituals. It's not because of an intimate feeling that we've had. Uh, Those may come. It's not through our goodness. Jesus is the way. No one comes except through him. So it's important that he made that clear before his departure. A second area that he deals with in terms of promise is the word of the Son. The words of Jesus play an important part in our lives, and the Holy Spirit reminds us of them and teaches us how to apply them. Uh, in verse 6, he shows us that the words that he speaks about God are true. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. The words that he speaks about God, the Father, about the nature of God are true. Uh, he he knows God intimately. No one has seen the Father except the Son. Okay, so if uh, I were wanting to know the ins and outs of, say, the White House, okay, am I going to ask my neighbor who lives next door, or what if I had the direct phone number to one of the cabinet members who was working within the White House? I know it's not an exact analogy. But you want the insider's view of things. If you really want to know the situation, you don't want to just know the, the gossip and the buzz that's going around. You want to get information from somebody who's on the inside. Nobody's closer to what heaven is like, to what God the Father is like than God the Son. And so he makes him known to us. The word of the Son tells us the truth about God the Father. His words uh, lead to a life which pleases the Father in verse 23. And verse 23 says, Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and will come to them and make our home with them. So he's saying here that when you obey the words of the Son, the promise is that it will lead to a life which pleases the Father. Now, he doesn't give us any uh, distinct commands like go to church on Sunday. Uh, We don't hear here, pay your tithes. Those things are really good. We should do those. But he's talking in general about the commands Jesus has given. What's the main command you know of that Jesus gave? Love God and love others as yourself. Okay, that's the, Those are his main commands. There are other rules. I'm not suggesting we cast out all rules. Uh, those are the main things that he's talking about. And then those are worked out in in how we love. What's the appropriate way to love? We do what we know is in the best interest of others. And that's where the other, the rules kind of come in. They show us what is the good for other people. But we have to apply those. And so we live by those commands. And it leads to a life which pleases the Father. Verse 24, if you look there with me, verse 24 shows us that the words of Jesus carry heaven's authority. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. These words that you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. 
Now, if we're to break this down and just kind of understand it in terms of Jesus' humanity, he's telling us these are not these are not words that are of a human origin. These words are from heaven and therefore have authority over our lives. Okay, I think um, we live in a time where uh, authority of all kind is being questioned, including the authority of God. Like, why should I believe that or why should I do that? And Sometimes if somebody tells us we should do something, there's a natural tendency within us to rebel against that and say we're not going to do that. And part of it is is the breakdown of authority in our world. Uh, But you can't win if you fight against the authority of God. It always comes back and gets us because it has consequences. When we fight against the authority of God, there's consequences. And so Jesus is saying here, his words have heavenly authority. He's telling his disciples, I'm getting ready to go. You need to obey the words that I'm giving you. And he's talking to guys that are his friends that have been with him for three years. We might think that he's just teaching some students he doesn't know, but he's saying to them, the words that I've been teaching you are not just from my own brain. This is sent from heaven. And therefore, it has a mandate for living it out in our lives. So, fellas, when it's time to get out there and to live, you got to live by this. Okay. His words also promise peace, which is the very thing which they're going to be needing if they're not going to be troubled. Verse 27, I've given you my peace, and not like the world can get, but the peace that only I can give. Verse 29, his words are a source of courage. If you hear these words of mine and believe in them, um, then you'll know when these things come. Uh, that you can believe, you can trust in me. Okay. Then there's the promise of the help of the Spirit. I've got to go quick. The Holy Spirit is promised in this passage, and this is an exciting. Uh, this ought to be an exciting part because this this is rubber meets the road stuff. We're not talking about something that happened a long time ago, though I don't think that that's irrelevant. Uh, sometimes we think if it didn't happen in our lifetime, it's not relevant to us. Jesus' death is it relevant to you and me? And the answer is yes. Amen. Are we awake? It, it is relevant. Happened a long time ago, long before we were born, but it still matters. But then how that's worked out in our life is that the Holy Spirit comes in, and this is where the rubber meets the road. This is him appropriating the work of Jesus to our lives as we trust in him. So the Holy Spirit is promised in this passage. Verse 16 um, he says, I will ask the Father if you obey my commands. I'll ask the Father, and he will send another, send you another advocate. Another advocate. Why does he say another? Anybody want to take a guess or no? Because who's our advocate? Jesus is our advocate, right? I think it's in First John, right? Uh, chapter 1. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's already our advocate. But what does he say here? He says, another, another of the same kind of advocate. Another advocate. Okay. Um, in verse 16. And he goes on to talk about uh, the advocate will teach you all things, remind you of everything I've said. Verse 26. I'd like you to just notice some of the names that are given for the Holy Spirit here and the first uh, name that we've just mentioned here is advocate, and the Greek word looks something like this. Parakletos. Okay. And uh, this paraclete, we've, we've often heard. And uh, 
Five times this is used in the New Testament. Anybody want to guess who uses them? There's only one writer that uses them. This is John, right? It's John. We already know that because we're in John here. But uh, four times in the gospel, one time in the letter of John. And this word for advocate, this word paraclete, uh, means helper or counselor. And really, no single English word has exactly the same range of meaning as this word does. Okay? An advocate is someone who advocates or supports a position or viewpoint. And since this is what the paraclete will do for the preaching of the disciples, it was selected, even though there's some drawbacks to, to using it. If you were to use it in a secular sense, it would have been somebody who represents you in a court. Okay, Somebody who represents you in a court of law. Uh, and so taking it in its most general sense, uh, it means one who appears in behalf of an, another, on another's behalf as a mediator or intercessor or helper. Uh, one uh, book that I was researching on this word, one who is called or sent for to assist. Okay? That's what the Holy Spirit is as paraclete. He is the one who uh, is called for to assist, to help. Okay. Then he's called the spirit of truth, which means he promotes the truth, teaching, reminding, later convincing. We see in chapter 15 and 16 that he convinces the world of sin. So the, the spirit of truth promotes the truth about God, about the world, about us. Okay, And, so, and then we have the Holy Spirit whom the Father will send in my name. Um, in my name is kind of an interesting phrase in in John, and it stands for the person and works of Jesus. When it says the Holy Spirit was would be sent in my name, it means that he's going to come to continue to promote the cause of Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to continue the mission of Jesus through his church. When you uh, hear several times in John, uh, chapter 1, verse 12, 223, 318, 20, verse 31, it says there, these things are written that you might believe, and in believing you might have life in his name. Uh, when it's saying in his name, it means his person, in him. Okay, In his name is kind of a, a Jewish way of just saying in, in him. Okay, So let's not get hung up on the in his name. In his name is not a magical formula that makes prayers work. In his name means that you're praying in relation to who the person of Jesus is. It's not a little phrase that we say that kind of captures it all and puts a stamp and makes it approvable uh, as if it's a formula. It's not. In the name of Jesus means that because Jesus is who he says he is, because he's promised what he said he promised, we did what he did, that we can believe that he's an answer of prayers. So when we pray in his name, we're reminding ourselves of who he is. That's what we're doing. Okay, so in his name... That's what the Holy Spirit is doing. He's coming to represent Jesus. How does the Spirit help? Well, in a lot of ways, but in this passage, he helps by carrying on the mission of Jesus in verse 12 and verse 26. Uh, he helps by being with us continually. Uh, he he will uh, be with you and he'll be in you. He's a, the Spirit that uh, will be with you forever, John says here. Okay. So, so check this out. There's a place in First um, John chapter two, verse twenty and twenty-seven, where it talks about anointing. Who's anointed? Let me ask you that. 
Is it special people who are anointed? Yeah, kind of. Kings are anointed. Who else? Jesus was anointed. Who else? Good. John, you cut right to the chase. That's it. When it says it in 1 John 2, 20 and 27, it's writing to all Christians, and he's saying, you have an anointing which abides. And then it talks about the Holy Spirit. What it means is that we're all anointed with the Holy Spirit. Now, some people are anointed in a particular way beyond that, like they're called to be pastors or missionaries or teachers or anointed in some way with uh, musical talent or, or whatever else it may be. But there's a sense in which we all are anointed because the Holy Spirit rests upon us. And he abides. You have an anointing which abides. It doesn't come and go. Remember how in the Old Testament the Spirit of God fell upon people like Samson and he would thrash about and tear things up and bust people's chops and do all kinds of stuff. Remember that? And nobody here has the anointing of Samson, so don't get any ideas. I'm anointed to make a mess of things and beat people up. No. That was a particular Old Testament anointing for national Israel to help them defeat their enemies. We're anointed in another way, and it's anointing which abides. It doesn't just come upon, or the Holy Spirit doesn't clothe himself with us in the same way just for a temporary moment. He abides, and that's so good. Okay, that's that ought to be encouraging. Okay, I've gone a little longer with that than I wanted to, but he also teaches and reminds us of what Jesus said, and that was particularly for uh, the apostles that they needed to remember what Jesus has said. Now, if you've ever been troubled by the fact that Gospels were written so much after the fact, I want you to remember a couple of things. Number one, remember that the apostles who are writing lived in an oral culture where things were transmitted by stories. Okay, We write things down. We don't worry about memorizing them. But so many of the things that the, happened in those days happened because they had an oral tradition where they told things over and over and over and over again. So every week in church, John the Apostle is getting up and telling the stories that he has in his gospel. So it's not a problem for us that 60 years later he wrote them down. He's been saying them over and over again for 60 years. Okay? Keep in mind a second thing. The Holy Spirit said he will bring to mind the things that Jesus said. So you have not only the reoccurring statement of those things, but you have the Holy Spirit reinforcing that by bringing them to mind. So this was going to be important in the uh, calling of Jesus, but I think it's true of us too. The Holy Spirit brings to mind the scriptures that we learn. Okay? Uh, I know God can speak directly to us. I think he can. But you know, a uh, majority of time, the way that God deals with me and leads me and, and other people is that he reminds us of what scripture says in a particular situation. Like you're mad at somebody, and then that first comes to mind, um, you know, in your anger, sin not. Or, um, you know, maybe the other one is if anybody's angry with their brother without a cause, right? Uh, if anybody hates, you know, their brother, they don't have they don't have eternal life abiding in them, and suddenly you get checked in your heart and realize I can't be like this. I've got to be different. The Holy Spirit is brought to mind the Word of God. And He does that to us, and He did that for them. 
And that's such an encouragement. So how does the Spirit help teaching us, remind us what Jesus said? He reveals Christ to us, and he causes us to know him more and to be transformed in his likeness. And this is not all that the Holy Spirit does, but this is what Jesus chose to promise uh, in this passage, that we would not be alone when the change came, when the disciples had to now walk by faith because they couldn't see Jesus. They needed to know they had the Holy Spirit with them to remind them of all that he had said a helper who lives inside of us, one that will advocate for us for Jesus' sake. All right, finally here, and we'll go quick, three practices. These are things that we do. Okay, We have promises. We talked about the promises of Jesus. Now three practices. First of all, uh, believing in Jesus. Okay, We need to... We need to not practice makes perfect, but we need to put into practice our trust in Jesus. And because trusting in Jesus is not a passive thing, it's an active thing. All right? Anybody ever been through a a wave of doubt and you had to say to yourself, soul, I will trust God in this? Anybody been there? Okay. You know? We're tempted to do the wrong thing. We have to put ourselves in check and say, I'm trusting that God knows what's best, and he's commanded me not to, and he knows what's best. Yeah, that's true. Believe here means to believe to the extent, the word for believe here means to believe to the extent of complete trust and reliance. So when he says in... um, Verse one, verse two: Believe in God. Uh, believe also. You believe in God. Believe also in me. That's verse. Yeah, verse one. Don't let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. He's talking about believing to the extent of complete trust. This isn't just like faith for miracles. This is a daily kind of trust. Okay, you realize faith isn't just faith for God to do a big thing. That's part of faith. Faith is also trusting God when the big thing doesn't happen. It's trusting him in the day-to-day. It's walking with him and looking to him and relying upon his help for day-to-day stuff. And so with Jesus getting ready to move off the scene, he's going to ascend to heaven, and the disciples are going to be left alone. They're going to have to trust in Jesus still, maybe more than they ever have in a different way because he's not going to be He's not going to be with them in a manifest presence. He's going to be with them in his omnipresence or his revealed presence. um, So they've got to trust him. We ought to believe in Jesus, verses 6 through 11, for our place with God. Okay, And we've talked about this a little bit, that we have a place with God because Jesus is the way. So we we believe in Jesus for our place with God. We don't believe in our emotions for that. Folks, if there's one thing that I've seen in 26 years of ministry now is that a lot of people leave a lot more in their emotions than they do in the promises of God. If they feel like they're saved, they're saved. If they don't feel like they're saved, they're not saved. Emotions are fickle and they're spoiled children. They're great liars. You can't trust that. You can trust Jesus. You can believe in Jesus. He said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. You can trust him. Okay, that doesn't mean we can run around and do whatever we want. We can put ourselves in a distance from God. But I do think if you're walking with God and you're sincere, 
you have a heart for God and you're trusting in Him, um, you have place with you have place with God. I think it follows. I believe in that we're saved in our allegiance to Him and our trust to Him. We trust Him. Okay, not it's not a work to trust that He's done all the work. Okay, are you with me? It's not a work for us to trust that He's done all the work. We're trusting in Him. We trust Him. We believe in Him. We believe in Jesus for our place with God, not how we feel, not that we've gone through catechism or we've had a certain prophet pray for us. None of that. Jesus, trust in him for our place with God. Also, we believe in him for his help, verses 12 through 18. He mentions uh, the help that he gives there through the advocate coming and also through answered prayer, uh, which I'll talk about more in just a second. Uh, but we trust him for his help. He can help us. He can come and be with us. He can strengthen us through the power of his Holy Spirit. He can answer prayer. Um, he can give us peace. And then we trust Jesus for the peace that he gives, verse 1, verse 27, verse 29. We look to him, realize that in him we've got a kingdom that's secure. Nothing can be shaken. So we trust him for that. Uh, the second practice is we need to obey Jesus. And verse 15 and 23 shows that this is how we show our love for him. How do you show your love for Jesus? Do you do it by singing really good songs to him and having heartfelt moments of worship? Yeah, that can express our love for him. But if we're going to take what Jesus has said about how we show love for him, he says, you show that you love me if you obey my commands. Okay. So we love him through action. This is not a performance kind of thing, but this is Jesus saying, if you want to show your love for me, show it through what you do. Words are cheap. And then verse 21 shows us when we obey Jesus that it welcomes a more intimate relationship. He says, I'll come to you and I'll make myself known to you. But That's all after he said, if you obey me, dot, 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 I will come to you and then I'll make myself known. As we walk in obedience to him, we come to know him in a more intimate way. He reveals himself to us. Verse 23 shows us that when we obey Jesus, it invites the expressive love of the Father. The Father will come and he'll show his love to us as we obey. This is not us, by the way, purchasing the Father's love. This is us being on the receiving end of, the God, of God's special. He loves the world. He loves the fallen world. He loves us when we're in rebellion. But there's a special kind of manifest love that comes to us when we are obedient to him. Okay? I, don't, I don't know how to distinguish that, but that's what the Bible says here. He will come and he will show his love to us in a different way. Okay? God loves everyone so much that he causes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, the sun to shine on the just and the unjust, so he shows kindness to all. But there's some kind of intimate love that we receive when we walk in obedience with him as his children. Okay. Special place. Verse 20, uh, 24 distinguishes us from those who don't love Jesus. Jesus says that there will be those the world will not obey him because it does not love him. And then the last part is in representing Jesus. This is the practice, representing Jesus in prayer, asking in my name, in my name here means for the glory of his name. Uh, 
that we have promises of answered prayer. Do you know that? Got two minutes. We can do this. But we, we also have the rebuke in James, which suggests that sometimes prayers aren't answered because we're praying selfish prayers to consume them upon ourselves. We want it because we want it, not because it's good for the kingdom or good for the name of Jesus or sees people saved, but because we just want that. And sometimes God answers those prayers, but there's no guarantee of that. That's not what this is talking about. Sometimes we have an example in Second uh, Corinthians 12, uh, 7 through 9, Paul's talking about the thorn in the flesh. And we have the example there that some prayers are not answered because there's a purpose in the way that things presently are. Paul said, I sought the Lord three times that he removed it. And he said, my grace is enough. And apparently, whatever that thorn was, it's debated, it was keeping Paul humble. So it was serving a purpose. And so God said, I'm not going to take that away because it's serving a purpose right now. And then there are times when prayers are not being answered because of timing or because they need to, the prayer needs to be prayed more persistently. And um, sometimes in the providential wisdom of God, he knows what he's doing, and we can't even answer why he wouldn't answer it. But we'll leave that with the Lord. I think it's important to keep in mind that Jesus didn't do every miracle that he could have. He only did what he saw the Father doing. John makes that clear. So in saying that, I don't want to discourage that. Uh, So I'm not giving excuses for why God doesn't answer prayer. I'm just saying if you've not had your prayer answered, here's some possible reasons. Okay, And uh, I would just encourage you to continue to ask for big things, not for selfish reasons, but for God's glory. Um, And so I just would encourage us not to mark it down to our own powerlessness. And then he mentions... um, serving him or representing him in miracles. Jesus says, what I do, uh, you will do also. I grew up in a church where we were believing this, and I still believe this, that he says, what uh, the works that I do, you will do also in greater works than these because I go to the Father. Now, what does he mean by greater? Greater in terms of significance than Jesus? What do you think? No, not greater in terms of significance. Nobody can do a greater miracle than the resurrection. Nobody can do a greater miracle than the miracles Jesus did when he walked on the earth. Perhaps greater in terms of quantity, greater in terms of overall magnitude, because Jesus, when he came, he was called to the lost sheep of Israel. But the message would go far beyond that through his followers, and it would be multiplied around the world when he went, because I go to the Father, the Holy Spirit will come. It's better that I go to the Father, Jesus says, so the Spirit can come and work through you. And what he's suggesting is that he can continue to do miracles through us. I believe that today. We ought to ask for God to do miracles. We ought to seek the gifts of the Holy Spirit to work through us. We ought to lay hands on the sick and expect that some people are going to get healed. We ought to pray for financial miracles. Why to believe God in advance for his kingdom to come through witnessing that he's going to save people because he's really good at it. And we represent him in obedience by doing the things he's called us to do, by living the way he's called us to live. And uh, he talks about that, that um, those who love me, obey me. Those who don't, it's going to show a little bit about who Jesus is and what his kingdom's like. Imagine this. If in your home and in your family you lived, you lived out the desired will of God. I think family's going to be better or worse than if we live like Hollywood shows us or 
what's what's going on in our contemporary mess, which is going to more accurately represent the goodness of God, which is going to look more like Eden restored or heaven come down. I think it's going to be when we walk in obedience to him. So as we, we see this kind of encouragement that Jesus gives, it came to his followers in the middle of change, and, and he offers these solid promises, and he calls to persistent practices. And In other words, the changing circumstances shouldn't change how we view Christ's promises. Okay? If he's promised it, it doesn't matter what's going on in the world or our circumstances. We ought to trust him, and we shouldn't stop believing, obeying, and promoting the kingdom of God when things look a little different or things change or our world looks turned upside down, Christ's promises are still true. And he gives us a warning in advance, and this is a great example of that, that things sometimes do change, but he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Aren't you glad for that? Amen. Stand with me if you would. Thanks for your gracious attention tonight and for the loaning me extra three minutes. I would promise to take that off of Sunday, but I can't give guarantees anymore. All right. Amen. Are you going through a difficult time tonight? Would you just lean into Jesus and realize he's the all-sufficient one? Are you feeling a little bit like your relationship with God's on shaky grounds? Lean into him tonight. He's trustworthy. Lord, we thank you for your great reassurance, the gentle way, and I doubt I've been able to convey the gentleness with which you you reinforced and encouraged your friends. Tonight, I just pray that what I've lacked in communication, you would make up for in some kind of personal expression to each heart here tonight, that you are worthy of our trust. And even if right now we're going through a difficult time or a shaky time, or we're all looking at our world and our governments and everything that's going on around us as if we can't trust anything anymore and the foundations have been shaken, that we would look to you and realize you're worthy of our trust. Thank you for all that you are. Thank you that you've given us a place at the table with the Father among the family. And we pray you help us to appreciate all of that. For Jesus' sake, help us, Lord, to be Christians who want to promote your name and are open to be used in miraculous ways if you should so choose. Help us to pray big prayers, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here tonight. Thank you for joining us today. If this ministry has impacted you, we would love to hear about it. You're welcome to message us at akmaranatha.com forward slash contact or message us on Facebook at Maranatha Full Gospel Fellowship. We pray you are blessed by the message and have a wonderful week.